So let's go ahead and pray. God, thank you so much, Lord, for being so good. God, I, Lord, I thank you for grace that carries us when we can't walk. I thank you for your strength that holds us when we can't stand. I, I thank you for love that loves us when it makes no sense, God, just. Lord, we'll never understand all your goodness and grace until the day we see you, that when we see you, we'll be like you and have some understanding, Father. And it'll, it'll sure be good. It'll sure be good to see you, Father. I thank you for the prayers that you've answered. I thank you for the miracles that you've done. But, God, we're still a needy people. You know the needs. You know the sicknesses. You know the financial problems. You know the marital problems. You know the, the wayward children problems. God, you know all the needs. And, Father, I don't want to make them generic because each one is individual, but you know them each individually, God, and we're just going to hand them up to you. You know the names that are on the prayer list and, and each need there, Father, the ones that are in the military and overseas and the hedge of protection that, that we're praying for for them, God. I just, Lord, I lift a prayer request up to you. Lord, I ask you, would you take this, this book here tonight that you've handed us, God, and would you teach it to us, Father? Would you give us something to make us stronger, something to help us to serve you better? We love you, God. You've been good to us. Lord, we trust you and we thank you. We praise you in the precious holy name of Jesus. Amen. Well, um, we don't have a screen on either, do we? Huh? Like with a clock. I didn't get a watch either. They, they want me to have one. We really probably threw a few minutes early anyway, but that's okay. We're going to stop when we get to Philip, just because I didn't really have time to go on into Philip without stopping right in the middle of something. So tonight, we're going to finish up 7, get into 8 a little bit until we get to Philip, and then we'll stop there. If you want to turn in your Bibles, last week we're in Acts chapter 7. We'd made it down to verse number 53. If you remember there in verse 53, <clears throat> Stephen has basically, he's, he's been making his case he's been making his his plea to the Sanhedrin council to the religious elite of Israel he's trying to tell them about Jesus he's trying to convince them about Jesus being the son of God he's trying to get some people saved that's what he's trying to do I was thinking as I, as I studied and we'll see it some as we go through it I was wondering if, if any one of those people of the Sanhedrin if he could have had this conversation with each one of them individually on different days, I wonder, I wonder if some of them would have been saved. I mean, we've looked at the argument that he's made, and we looked at the things he's talked about. He's made a really good case with, with everything that he said, and they, they've sat and listened to it. So I, I don't know. About, I know right here we'll, we'll see a part, but we'll look a little bit more about maybe how some were within it. But in the closing statement, he basically says, look, your fathers are the one that killed the prophets. God has sent us people to the nation of Israel. God has sent the Hebrew people warnings and prophets, and he's continually sent people. And your fathers killed the prophets. But you, you killed the Messiah. They killed the one that, that prophesied about the Messiah. But you actually killed the Son of God. You, you murdered, he used the word, you murdered the, the Messiah. He says, you, you've had the law. We received the law from, from generations to generations, from Moses on down. It's been handed down. He, he says that the law was received by the dispensation of angels. He said, you've been given the law by the angels of God. The dispensation of angels has handed it down, but you've not kept the law. 
all the way back to when the law was being given, the people were at the bottom, when he says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, and thou shalt not make any graven image. They're down there building a golden calf. And from that day forward, they've continually broken the law. So we left off at verse 54, where it says, that When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. Now, if it stopped right there, if they were cut to the heart, that might be a good sign. Because you're thinking maybe the Holy Spirit. You know, when you're witnessing to somebody, that's what you want. You want them cut to the heart. You don't want them cut to the heart like cut down and broken. You, you want them cut to the heart. You want the Holy Spirit to do what you can't do. You can just tell them the Word of God. But the Holy Spirit can cut the heart. And if it just stopped right there, that would sound like a pretty good thing that they were cut to the heart, but it doesn't. They were, they were, they were ticked off. They, they gnashed on him with their teeth. You remember, that's where we left off last week when I was talking about how your moms would, would talk without moving their teeth apart and, and was just, yeah, that's like you know you better do whatever it was that you didn't do or you better stop doing whatever it was you wasn't supposed to do because you got there. Well, that, that's where they are. They've brought their accusations against Stephen. They've heard Stephen's rebuttal. Now, it seems like if you read through and look and you take what we're given, you're not always given everything, but we're given what we're given. The things we're not given by the Word of God, we don't know. But the things we are given that we can kind of look into, it seems like they probably at least have listened with patience. You know, I don't see any butt ends in here. I don't see any stops. It's not like this argumentative. It's almost like a court of law where the person that's on the stand is allowed to speak. The people out there don't get to put back in. So it seemed like maybe there's some patience. But I, I, I kind of got a feeling that when he started speaking, some of those overdressed religious elite probably had that little smirk on their face. You know what I'm talking about? That, that little smirk. I mean, you're wasting your time. We got you dead, left or right. You sit up and talk as long as you want to. When it's all said and done, we carry you out by it and put some stones up against your noggin. So they, they, they had that. I, I'm just assuming some of them probably did, but they were at least patient in it and let him present his case. But then he began to speak about the prophets. That, that probably caught him a little off guard, you know, that, that he started out talking about the prophets. I mean, if I'm... If I'm looking to plea my defense, I, I start talking about my defense. I don't go all the way back to Abraham. I don't go all the way back to the beginning of the Hebrew nation and to the promise that God made to Abraham. And, and then he goes with Joseph, and he starts talking about Moses. And to be honest, he, he starts saying some things that make a lot of sense. He starts bringing the Word of God up. So if they were sitting there kicked back casually, let do his part and had a little smirk on their face, he wiped that smile right off their face. He took that smirk. He, he gave them something that they at least had to set up on the edge of their seat and pay attention because he's talking about things. He's not making stuff up. He's bringing up things that are proven in the Word of God. He's bringing up what these people were called by God in the beginning to do, and that's to carry the Word of God to the next generations. He's bringing up facts that these, these Sanhedrin, these Pharisees, these Sadducees, they would have known these things, and they have no option but to agree with Stephen and what he's saying because they're biblical facts. So, so Stephen's raising up his case. He's putting it in. But when it starts becoming obvious where he's going with all this, you know, he, he started, you, there, you can look at that and see, that this ain't Stephen talking, man. This is a Holy Spirit-driven conversation. This is the Holy Spirit that took him back and walked him through. And he established something to show the fault of the Hebrew nation and all this there. 
But all of a sudden, when it got to the point that they began to see where this conversation was going, when they began to, to put it together and realize where Stephen was taking this and, and what, what was actually being said, it, it says that they were cut to the heart. They're, they're gnashing at their teeth. They were in a rage. You know, you can almost imagine how that must have been. I, I just I think of I think of a bunch of irate men. I think of people yelling. You know, some of them's yelling, some of them's fussing at him. It, probably so much being said all at one time that nobody's hearing anything that's being said. You know what I mean? There's a whole lot of yelling, and everybody's yelling at him. Everybody's making their accusations and going on. I imagine somebody outside could probably hear and say, what in the world is going on in there, man? That all, all the noise and the uproar because it says that, that they charged toward him. But that's what I was thinking about. I wonder if Stephen could have talked to some of them personally. Because I wonder if there's some of them right here. You know, some of these guys has got to know. Stephen's got a valid point. They got to know. They know the law. When, when you're proven wrong, if you know the law well enough to know that he brings in and you're proven wrong, some of them had to know Stephen's right. Some of them had to. It, this is just my way of thinking. I, I, I can't prove that from it. I'm just, I'm just thinking if they knew the Bible, they knew the Old Testament as well as we know they did, then they had to have known that what Stephen has is a good point. But then, you know, you got some of them, they don't care right or wrong. He's making them look bad. So once they start yelling, you know, I'm just thinking some of them were probably sitting there convicted of the Holy Spirit. I'm thinking the Spirit's probably working in the hearts, and they're starting to feel guilty. But now when all of a sudden you get a bunch of them yelling, and they're ready to take them out, I figured that was a great opportunity for them to cast the guilt off themselves and start putting the guilt back on Stephen. So now you wind up that, that all of them are, are yelling at him. So all of them are just, are just going. But, but I want to make sure that we look at what happens next. How many of you in here know that God could have gotten Stephen out of this? God could have sent an angel. God could have sent some men in there, soldiers in there. God, God, God could have struck all them dead. He could have given them some form of paralysis or something that allowed Stephen to walk out. I mean, there's any way that God wanted, God could have gone in and gotten Stephen out of this. And we know that for a fact beyond a shadow of a doubt. But we also know that he didn't. And if he didn't, there had to be a reason for it. What he did do in verse 55 was he gave Stephen something to hold on to. This will be good for somebody. This, this, some, somebody, may, and maybe it's a live stream, maybe it's a later, maybe it's somebody in here. But, but there's people go through hard stuff, and sometimes we wonder why God don't get us out of some things. He gave Stephen what he needed for the time. He gave him what he needed right then. He gave him grace. He gave him a calm assurance. He gave him uh, th this satisfying attitude because he let him see where he was about to be. It says there in verse 55, But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. So we talked about words. I talked to two different people about words. Shannon and I talked about words today, and I talked with another gentleman about some Bible verses. We were talking to them. We were talking about words and word studies. Words are important. A single word can a lot of times 
change what's actually taking place or change the way a verse works out. It says that he saw Jesus standing on the right hand of God. Now think about where Stephen's at. you got all these men that are ready to kill you. you got the, the members of the Sanhedrin all up there with their, with their garb on and they're yelling and you know they've got the power to kill you and now they're gathering up and you've got this angry mob going on and, and all of the hate and everything being focused this way. And, and God, in the middle of that, directs his attention away from all the hate, away from all the yelling, away from all the, the turmoil that's going around him, and he shows him a glimpse of heaven. He allows him to see the temple. Remember, what's one of the things, the last thing that Stephen was defending was the temple, that, hey, the temple's not forever. There is a temple coming that is forever. You men have made an idol out of this temple. It's not in the original. You had the one David built. You had the one back that, that Moses built. I mean, this isn't in the original. He's been talking about the temple. And, and right here, God allows him to see the temple, not, not a temple made with hands. He allows him to see the temple. But not just the temple. It says that he saw Jesus. Now, I already know Jesus told us he'd be at the right hand of the Father. But it says that he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. He allowed Stephen to, to see what he had just witnessed to him about. He allowed, he's been telling him about Jesus. He's the Son of God. He's at the right hand of the Father. He, he allowed him to see everything that's there. But he doesn't just see the temple. And he doesn't just see Jesus at the right hand of the Father. I think it matters that the Holy Spirit took time to say that he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And I can tell you why I think that. I think Jesus stood up in approval of what Stephen's doing. I think Jesus was standing at the right hand of the Father. He wasn't sitting back, wasn't casually laid back. He wasn't slouched. He wasn't just seated at the right hand of the Father. When he allowed Stephen to look up, he allowed Stephen to see him standing. Now, to me, that can mean a couple things. Number one, I'm standing because I'm on my way to get you. This is going to be a personal meeting right here. This is going to be you and me. But, but I believe it's almost standing in approval of all the way to do it, all the way to handle it. This is, this is kind of like God's last effort to reach the Sanhedrin. This is God pouring everything out right here through Stephen, trying to get them to turn to Christ. This is the moment. They've already, they've already forsaken Christ. Here at this one, this is their chance to accept the Holy Spirit and back up and accept Christ. They're fixing to reject the Holy Spirit, and their deal is done. It's going to delay the promise of Abraham for decades. I believe that Jesus stood up, one, because of, of what Stephen has just done. I believe it's an approval. I, I believe it's standing up kind of like, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You know what I mean? I, I think there's a reason that it says that, that he's standing. Now, God hasn't changed. We know that, right? And if God gave Stephen that kind of grace and that kind of vision in the middle of that kind of turmoil, God can give us whatever grace we need to get whatever we're going through. If God can give him that in the middle of that, then he can give us, us what we need for whatever it is that we're dealing with. Anybody believe that? But Stephen still has another trial to face. He's, he's not quite done just yet. We have his final testimony. Verse 56 says, Behold, 
I see the heavens open. The Son of Man is standing on the right hand of God. First it, it tells what he saw, but now he tells them what he sees. They're, they're all in their turmoil and their rage. He's looking up. He takes time to stop and look at him and says, oh, y'all still here? <laughs> you don't see what I see? I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Many of the Sanhedrin that's here in this courtroom on this day, many of them that are here in this mockery of a trial against Stephen were also present in the mockery of the trial against Jesus Christ. The same ones that are here today were, were still there then. Caiaphas was the high priest that accused Jesus Christ. Caiaphas is the high priest that has brought accusations here against Stephen. Mark chapter 14, Caiaphas asked Jesus, he said, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said in verse 62, I am. You shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Here Stephen says, I see him. I see him standing at the right hand of the Father. I wonder how many of them that are present at this trial remember what Jesus said. They, they've been in this, you know, it's got to be kind of like a deja vu. We've been in this before where we brought a man in for a mockery of a trial and we brought these accusations and they had answers that we don't have any thing for we don't have anything against so all we can do is try to make up some lies i wonder how many of them remember back to the answers that jesus gave when on the day when they accused him but they refused to stand up for stephen for fear of the rest of the crowd i just wonder if peer pressure played a part in here because i'm thinking out of 72 men that know the gospel somebody in there had to at least had a little bit of belief i don't know that i'm just thinking that but stephen Stephen says, in the mind of the Sanhedrin, in the mind of, of the religious elite there, about the worst thing he could have said by placing Jesus Christ on the throne at the right hand of God as in co-equal. They were already ticked because Jesus Christ had said that he was the Son of God, that which makes him equal to the Father himself. The Word of God tells us, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. So we know that the Word was Jesus Christ. The Word was God. The Word was with God. The Word was God. So we know that Jesus Christ, the Word, was with God. We know that all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So what we have in John 1, 1 is in the beginning, God slash Jesus created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the earth. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. We have God the Father, John 1, 1, God the Son, and the Spirit moved God the Holy Spirit all present at creation. So what we have is God a trinity in one. They're all one, all power, all together. So Jesus is not just the Messiah for the Jew. Jesus is the Messiah for the entire universe. All of the law has been fulfilled. All of the Old Testament law, all the Old Testament prophecy leading up to the Messiah has been fulfilled. The promise to Abraham has been placed on hold for a little while. It's not broken. It will be fulfilled. That, that time is yet to come. But what it did, it, it brought in the dispensation period of grace, of which we can be extremely thankful for. And it began the church age, which is the age that we live in 
that we can also be thankful for. I'm glad that I live in the dispensation period of grace and not the dispensation period of the law. I'd have done been stoned a lot of times way before now. So what God has done now is made himself available to all men. He was available to the Jew through the high priest, through the atoning of the blood of goats and lambs once a year. Now he's available to you and I. What God has done is rent the veil in twain. He has made access to the Holy of Holies. He has made access to the mercy seat. He has made access to the cherubim. He has made access into the very throne room of grace that we might obtain mercy. He changed everything to open it up. So the creator of the universe, God of the universe, he, he's our God. We have a personal friend called God. Isn't that awesome? That, that God cares that much about somebody like me. Well, verse 57 says that they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears and ran upon him one accord. I believe they heard all they were going to hear. All it took was for one of them to make the first move. Somebody to, to move toward him and go to put hands on him, and then others gathered, they ran in. I don't, I don't believe this is all just hate. I, I believe there's a lot of conviction of the Holy Spirit right here. And it's irritating them because they, they, they know what they're hearing is true. We know it's true, right? Everything said about Abraham was true. Everything said about Moses was true. Everything said about Joseph was true. Everything said about the temple was true, right? So everything they're hearing is true. But, and and, and it's, I believe it's the Holy Spirit convicting them, and, and they just become irate. They run in, they grab him, they cast him out of the city in verse 58, and stoned him, and witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. I, I, I said, and, and I shouldn't have said it, I guess, about three weeks ago on a Sunday morning, I said, I don't believe in coincidences. I don't believe in bad luck, and I don't believe in good luck, and I don't. I believe in trials. I believe in testings. I believe in blessings. If coincidence means God had no control over it. Coincidence means bad things that happened to me had no purpose, but I don't believe that. God has a purpose in everything he does. And about three or four days later, we just got through paying and had the entire downstairs done so we could live downstairs and have the upstairs redone. And the dude sanding the hardwood floors to do the upstairs repairs, hit the water line and flooded the basement where we were and all of our furniture down there. So I was telling one of the contractors about it. We are talking. I was down there working. He said, you remember what you said Sunday? I said, ain't no telling. He said, he said, you don't believe in trials. I mean, you don't believe in bad luck. I said, I don't. He said, buddy, I've had some trials with some water. I said, like, yeah, I'll give you that. I guess this is four times. This is, this is four times. But I, I, don't, I don't know why I got off into that. I don't know where I, I was going somewhere with that. They had a good start. I should have just stayed with the message. Saul, that's where I was. It's not coincidence, especially, I don't believe in coincidence, period, but if the Holy Spirit writes it, I sure don't believe in coincidences. It's not coincidental that he wrote anything about Saul. It's not coincidental that we're talking about Stephen, we're talking about a trial, we're talking about the Sanhedrin, we're talking about accusations, we're talking about all the Old Testament prophets, and the Holy Spirit, he's being stoned. you got 72 members of the Sanhedrin, they're all there. He doesn't say anything about any of them by name. He doesn't call Caiaphas the high priest by name. He says there's a young man there, and his name's Stephen. It's not an accident that the Holy Spirit stops to point out right there that Stephen 
It is present. See, Saul is to be Stephen's spiritual heir, if you will. Saul will pick up and go on to being the kind of man that Stephen was. I mean, here Stephen is this man of good report and a man filled with the Holy Spirit. Saul is going to be the new apostle. He don't know it. Some of you in here right now, Sunday school teachers, choir singers, special singers, preachers, some of you right here, right here in this place, you're something. You don't know it yet. Nobody around you knows it yet. Well, you're something already. We already know that. You're something right what you are. But there's something else in store. You know what I'm talking about? God has a plan. None of us have arrived yet. This isn't the end product. If this is the end product, I'm going to get kicked out of heaven. I, this may not be as bad as it used to be, but this is a long way from what it needs to be. So God, God's still working on us. We haven't arrived at the end product. There's something in Saul coming that, that nobody sees yet, but the Holy Spirit takes an opportunity to put it right here because the Holy Spirit knows it. If he doesn't do anything else, he puts it in there to make sure that we know that he knows it. Amen? He took time to put it in there, kind of pointing forward. Paul, in his letter to Timothy, still kind of part of the introduction. See, see, Paul right here, Paul is so blinded by religion. I'm sorry, there, there's a lot of church issues still with that today. Oh, it's going to get quiet for a minute. There, there's a lot of legalism still going on in some churches. There, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of dress codes. I hate having this on. Don't make me preach any better or any worse. If I preach better, I dress like this. But, 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 but I, I, this isn't what I'm comfortable doing just because it's not what I believe, but it's not what I can enforce. It's not like, hey, you got to wear something different to come to church. But there's a lot of churches trying to do that. And it's not just dress codes, it's stuff. you got to be like them. It's legalism, it's man-made laws, there's a lot of stuff being drug in, and it is re religion, that's all it is. It is the bondage of religion. Christ died to set us free from chains. Christ died to set us free from bondage, not to bond us in man-made laws. He, he died to set us free from the law. If we just love God and love our neighbors ourselves, then we'd keep all the law, and we'd all be in one accord the way that the church is designed to be. Saul is blinded by religion. All he knows is everything he's ever been taught. Now, I'm not going to spend any time because I've said that before, but I kind of understand that. If you come up right now and you try to teach me another religion, you're wasting your breath. You're wasting your time. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You try talking another, another Savior, another religion, another anything to me, we can sit here and talk until we agree to disagree. You can come to where I am, but I ain't leaving. Jesus Christ got me out of hell. He got me out of my past. He got me out of everything back there. He brought me here. And I've got a future promise that I ain't going to miss. So I can kind of understand where these people are, not just the Sanhedrin and Saul, but the difference is, the difference in Saul is, is he has all of the religion that he's bound, everything that he's taught. But what you have when you're trying to talk to somebody and they're in another religion is we have the Holy Spirit on our side, working inside them, doing what we can't do. They don't have anybody to work in us. 
All they got is some dead little idols, some little Buddha dolls, or some stones in their pocket, or some foolish kind of stuff, or worshiping the stars, or Scientology, or whatever they're doing. But they, they don't, we got the Holy Spirit in us that's telling us the truth. So we're trying to witness to somebody, and that's what happens with Saul. Of course, Jesus Christ himself shows up, but he's, here he is bound by what he's known. And when he writes this letter to Timothy, he says in chapter 1 and verse 12 that I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. But in verse 13, he says, who was before a blasphemer. Paul's talking about himself. Before a blasphemer, a persecutor, an injurious. That means, man, I went out and persecuted. I beat people up, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. See, I believe I can one-up Paul. He said, I did it ignorantly, not believing. I lived that way in ignorance because I didn't believe. I lived as bad as Paul. I may not have went out beating up Christians, but I lived as bad a sinful life, and I did know, and I did believe. I just didn't want it. You know what I'm talking about? So if Paul saw that much grace, that it's that much grace that God had that kind of grace for me because I didn't know and I didn't believe, how much greater grace on somebody like myself that grew up in church and did believe it and ran from it? Boy, that's a pile of grace. God sees what nobody else sees. God saw something in Saul. That he was going to use. He sees this type A personality. Saul is among the best of the best. I'm not going to go over when Paul talks about Hebrew of Hebrews and gives all his qualifications, but, but he is among the best. Saul, what he clearly sees right here, he sees Christianity as a threat to Judaism. And, and Saul is going to destroy anything that comes against what he so firmly believes. After his Damascus road to experience, after he saw Jesus Christ, he preached the gospel with the exact same fervency that he fought against it. When, before he was a Christian, before he was Apostle Paul, he already had that kind of fervency, that kind of adamancy about what he believed. Now he has that fervency towards defending the gospel. And then it says in verse 59 that they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. See, they stoned Stephen, but not before Stephen's made his mark. Stephen's made a mark on the ones listening, but, but Stephen makes a mark even in this day. There is no way that Saul is ever going to forget this day. According to the text, Saul did not cast one stone. That, that's the way it would appear to me. Does it appear that way to you? He's holding the coats. So it would appear as Saul did not cast a single rock. But he was there. He held the coats, and he consented to what was being done. So Saul is just as guilty as everybody else there. He sits there, and he watches them stone Stephen but he sees Christ in Stephen. 
He sees this. Stephen said, I, I, see, I see Jesus standing at the right hand. But the words that Stephen said almost echo the words of Calvary. Stephen said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Jesus said in Luke 23, 46, he cried with a loud voice, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Verse number 60, Stephen said, it says he kneeled down, cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. When he did this, he fell asleep. The last thing he said was the same thing Jesus said on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I've tried to tell them the truth. What they're doing is wrong. What they're doing is guilty. But, Father, I'm asking you with my last dying breath, before I fall asleep, before I die, the last thing that I've got to say is lay not this sin to their charge. Stephen, as they're stoning him, is praying, God, send somebody behind me. Don't let this be the end. We, we've, we've cleared some weeds. We've cleared a field. We've furrowed out some rows. We've planted some seeds right here. Send somebody behind me. Send somebody in that some of these may be saved. Send somebody in to water to do a work. He's praying for the ones that are stoning him. I have no doubt that Saul never forgot what Stephen said. I think, I, I, I don't I don't know. This is just another possibility. But, but I, I tend to think that because Saul saw that, I'm thinking that might have been what Saul was thinking back on when he penned one of the great doctrines of the Christian faith. He said in his second letter to the church at Corinth, chapter 5 and verse 8, we are confident, I say willing rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Saul saw that with Stephen. He saw him look up in the midst of tragedy and say, I see the Father. He saw this calm assurance. He saw Stephen pray for his persecutors. He saw Christ in Stephen. I have no doubt he never forget what he saw. We get on to chapter 8. It's chapter 8 for us when, when the letter is written. Obviously, there weren't chapters and verses, but it says that Saul was consenting to his death, and at that time, there was great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. It says, devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. The stoning of Stephen seems to have opened the floodgates of persecution against Christians. It seemed to have brought everything forward and made it more harsh, more realistic. As we study the Acts of the Apostles, it's easy to see that it's the Jews, for the most part, it's the Jews that bring persecution against Christians. It's not the Gentiles. As far as the Gentile was concerned out there, that's still the Jews dealing with their God and God dealing with, with the Jew. So the persecution is brought mostly on the church by the Jew, but not just the Jew, but by the religious elite of the Jew, the, the, the Judaism, the ones that are holding on to the Old Testament law. I'm sure that the early church, the loss of Stephen probably would have seemed like a pretty incredible blow, wouldn't you think? I mean, it says that they carried and buried him. It says that there's great lamenting. Where's, it, where's, where's my verse? Where's my verse? It says that they made great lamentation over him. So here we have this man of honest report, this man filled with the Holy Spirit. Why? I mean, God, why, why don't you let him stone him? I wonder, I want to think about a convert that, Stephen just led to the Lord two days ago. 
They're filled with questions. They're filled with excitement. They're filled with wonder and awe. They're saved. There's so much they want to know about Jesus. There's so much more they want to know. And Stephen's taught him for a couple days. He just led him to the Lord. And now this, this great man of God is stoned to death. Why? I'm sure there had to have been some that, that wondered. It's no different than you and I. Is there anybody in here that never had said, why? Anybody here not ever asked God, why? How could that do any good? How could any good possibly come out of that? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why would somebody that solid in the church go through that kind of storm? Why was somebody reaching that many lost people, handing out that many tracts, witnessing to that many souls, preaching that many times a week? Why would they get killed in a car wreck? Why? See, what you have here in Stephen is a man that is sold out for God. He's preaching the gospel with every breath he has. He is, he is pouring into this. He's pouring into Christians. He's teaching the gospel. He is one of the key figures in the church. He's the first deacon of the church, of the new bride of Christ. And, and so here's this man, this first deacon that's witnessing the people and leading people to the Lord, and, and he's all in why would God allow him, of all people, to be taken from the church? Look at the text. Verse number 1. At that time, there was great persecution. Go on to the next one. Go to verse 2. Devout men carried him. Go to verse 3. Saul made habit. We ain't got there yet. At this time, there was great persecution against the church. I, I didn't write it down, so I can't give it to you. I just printed this part out. Great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Remember the last thing that Jesus said right before the ascension? right before he ascended up into the heavens in Acts 1-8, but you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and in Samaria and into the uttermost part of the earth. Had there not been an adversary, there would have been no persecution. Had there not been a persecution, there would have been no scattering. Had there been no scattering, Acts chapter 1 verse 8 would not have been fulfilled. Satan is an accuser. Satan is the opposition. He is the adversary. Satan is the one who caused the scattering. You've got to love how God uses Satan to accomplish his own works. How did God use Satan? Satan's driving that ship of hate. Satan's the one that caused the scattering of the broad. And all Satan accomplished by scattering the Christians is like taking a fire in Jerusalem, tossing it up into the air so that the ashes scattered everywhere and started a whole bunch of new fires all over the place. It was the scattering that, that spread the gospel. When the Christians scattered, they didn't get silent. They, they didn't get quiet about what Jesus had done. God was still God. Christ was still Christ. Salvation was still salvation. They just fleed persecution. 
They just left the place where they were going to get killed because there was another place where they could go that wasn't being sought so bad. But they went and carried out the gospel of Jesus Christ. So by coming in and beginning persecution at the church at Jerusalem, all it did was scatter abroad. The persecution accomplished God's plan. So the, the martyr of Stephen started it all. One, one of God's being martyred opened the doors of this persecution which scattered the church of Jerusalem so that the gospel was spread. Verse number 3, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house, inhaling men and women, and committed them to prison. Saul went from house to house, and he brought great tribulation. He made havoc on the lives of people. Now, after Saul becomes the apostle Paul, he never forgets it. I don't think he ever forgets their faces. There are widows at the church in Jerusalem, that Paul made them widows. There are fatherless in the church at Jerusalem that Paul, that Saul, Paul, made them fatherless. There are people that, that are poor and, and afflicted, and Paul knows they're that way because he made them that way. He went into that house of Saul. He calls that. The apostle Paul, I, I have no doubt that has a lot to do with why he has such a great love for the church at Jerusalem. If you study Paul's work, Paul loves the church at Jerusalem. He goes to other churches. He tells them, take up a collection. Take up money for the poor of the church at Jerusalem. Take up money. Take up things so that there has to be no offering when I come. Have it ready. When I come by, I'm going to get it, and I'm going to carry it to meet the needs of the church at Jerusalem. Romans 15, 25, Paul said, But now I go into Jerusalem to minister unto the saints, for it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. Just one of a multitude of examples where you could use the, that Paul talked about, I'm, I'm headed to Jerusalem. Thank, thank you for the ones that are helping support Jerusalem. Pray for the ones that are there at Jerusalem. He made havoc of the church. He made havoc of the Christians. Verse number 4 says, Therefore they were scattered abroad. They went everywhere preaching the word. On the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover, number 50 is always the Holy Spirit. On the day of Pentecost, the 50th day, the Holy Spirit shows up. He comes down and he falls in, and that's where we started our study there in, in Acts in chapter 2 and, he, and the cloven tongues. But the Bible says that Peter preached, right? 3,000 souls were added to the church, right? In Jerusalem. Acts, that's Acts 2.41. Acts 2.47, the Lord added to the church daily in Jerusalem. Acts 6.7 the word of God increased, and the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem. But after the martyr of Stephen, after the persecution of the church, after there's this great scattering, the gospel was spread not just in Jerusalem, but in all of Judea and into Samaria and into the uttermost parts of the earth. All I'm saying is what we can clearly see from the text is, is that sometimes just because we can't see it doesn't mean God's not doing something. Just because it seems turmoil to us doesn't mean that God doesn't have a plan. 
Just because we don't understand it, it makes no sense. We won't ask why, we won't ask what. Just because we can't make sense or heads or tails of it, we have to remember God said, my ways are not your ways. My ways are higher. My thoughts are not your thoughts. I wouldn't have had Stephen stoned to death, would you? I, I would I would have... I would have been outside of that courtroom as a Christian. I would have been praying earnestly, God, make a way, believe with all my heart that God was going to get Stephen out of that. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't, wouldn't you? Wouldn't we be there? I mean, if that was, that was one of our, our greats here in the church, one of our middle men, and they're being accused, wouldn't we be gathered outside the courtroom in a great prayer meeting, counting on God and expecting him to deliver him from such lies and hypocrisy? Then, then you think it would make sense to us if they killed him in the courtroom? But God had a plan. But what we can see is that if it had not been done God's way, then the disciples do not accomplish what God told them to accomplish because they're in Jerusalem. Matter of fact, if you look, pull, pull the verses back up. Somebody tell me which one it is. I just opened my own Bible and find it myself. I don't know. That's why I got to find it. Oh, there it is. It's verse number one of chapter eight. Saul was consenting unto his death. And that that time there was great persecution against the church was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except who? They would have never gotten it done. They were, they were content to stay at Jerusalem. They were doing a great work. The church is being not just added to, but God's gone from addition to multiplication. Now he's multiplying the church daily in Jerusalem. But the last thing he told them, I, I want you to reach further than Jerusalem. I got some people coming along in LaGrange, Georgia that need to hear the gospel. I got some people coming along that ain't going to make it to Jerusalem. They can't afford plane tickets over there, not to mention they're scared to go over there. They're scared of what might happen. I need to get the gospel to them because they ain't coming to here. So this says even then the apostles stayed, but what God did, he scattered his own. Boy, that's important for you and I. God scattered the church. God took the members of the church. Anybody got where I'm going yet? God took you... God took us. He left the apostles in Jerusalem. God took us and said, take the gospel to the world. And that's what happened because of what happened to Stephen. So just because we don't understand something in our life doesn't mean God ain't doing something in our life. Just because we don't understand the trial and tragedy. Y'all remember, it's been a, probably a couple years, I preached a message when your test becomes your testimony. The greatest stories you have is your testimony. The greatest testimonies that we have is the test that God brought us through. When I was in the test, I didn't think I'd ever get out of it. When I was in the test, I thought I was at the end of the road. I, I never thought I'd see the light at the end of the tunnel. But now the test that God has brought me through is the biggest testimony that I have in my life today. And my faith is only as big as my biggest test was. So if you want to pray for God, increase my faith, knock yourself out. But you understand the only way for your faith to get bigger than your faith is is for God to bring you through something bigger than anything you've ever been through. 
So praying God increase my faith can be a scary prayer because God's got to take you somewhere and put you in an isolated spot somewhere where you ain't got no way out but God, and God makes a way out of no way. Now your faith can grow a little bit more. Just because we don't understand it doesn't mean God ain't in it. Amen. God, thank you so much. Thank you for the blessed assurance of your word, God. Thank you, Father, that you can let us see that Lord, it looks like it cost Stephen his life, but it didn't cost Stephen nothing. He didn't end life. He stepped into life. He's still alive and well today. He ain't never hurt. He ain't never had a, a, a toothache, a, a heartache. He, he's never had any pain, God.